The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. Chapter two, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when my city, where my fathers are buried, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me a safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. This is the word of the Lord. a long passage to read. I told her, why doesn't she just go ahead and read the whole book and we'll be ready for the rest of the month. All right. When we are, uh, when we're in times, like the times that we're going through right now, uh, I think the importance of our church body coming together 
um, I, just, I just feel like us coming together and feeding off each other as a family, we need each other so much right now. Um, and I think it's important uh, to be able to have that shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder time where you can come in and you get up close to the people in your church like you don't at other times. So I'm not going to make everybody move, but I'll follow Jerry's pattern. I think, I think if we all scooted up as close as we can, so we're brushing shoulders with each other. Because right now, we've we got, we got a few months ahead of us where we're going to be reaching into this community. And you guys are going out, and you're coming back in, and when you come back in from the community, I think we need to be brushing shoulders. And I think we need to be close. And I'm, those of you in the back, you don't have to make everybody move, but let's get in, let's get in close. Because I think we need to be a family. I, I just feel like, it, you know, we're a family, but in times like this, you really feel the need for it. You know what I mean? You, you feel the need that we need to be brushing shoulders with each other because we go out and we come back and, uh, we, you know, if you're sitting at a dinner table with your family, you're not spread out. Um, why don't we open up our service in prayer this morning before we get into the Word of the Lord. Our precious Father, we... We call to you this morning, and you got a lot of work to do. you got a lot of things on your heart, God, for our community, and so many people that have been affected, so many people that everybody in here is connected with, I'm sure, God. Uh, somebody that's been hurt um, is really going through it, has had a rough number of weeks. So uh, this is your time to gather your church and this is your time to speak to us before we go back out. And I just pray that you would move in this service today and everything that you do and everything that you speak, God, and that you would, you would fill us up and prepare our hearts for what this week has in store. Because I know every week for the next number of months is going to be something new. And I just pray that you prepare us for it, God. So help us to be real, help us to be transparent and responsive to your word this morning as we get into it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You know, I have to say, it's interesting how, how our Lord works. Um, originally, I was, I was going to be scheduled to speak in June, um, and things were going on in my family, and we postponed it till July, and then um, things were still going on uh, in the season that we were in, and uh, ended up bumping things back to August, and all that time, God had really laid the the book of Nehemiah on my heart, um, and just dealing with uh, how, how do we respond uh, to the promptings of our God as individuals, and how do we respond to the promptings of our God as, as a body as a whole. Uh, but in June, I had no clue what we were going to be going through in August. Uh, and so God pushed this back which we have to know that that means that God has something that he wants us to go through um, as a church body. So I want to look into this today, starting with the, our personal responsibility and our, our personal action as we, we try to figure out how to respond to the promptings of God on our heart. Because every one of us, I think it's safe to say, has somebody that we know that's been affected. And, and every one of us is going to leave this building today, and we're going to go out into that world. So I want to read through this part um, again here, the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the months of, month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah. Now, just a quick background of where we're at. The book of Nehemiah, basically the children of Israel, um, the two different sides, Israel and Judah, by this time they've gone into captivity. 
um, to Babylon and to Assyria, and in 539 BC, this empire of Media and Persia took over all of Babylon and Assyria, and so both of them become like the possessions that go along with it, um, Israel and Judah. But in uh, 538 BC, uh, the ruler of the world, Cyrus the Great, at that point issues a decree to allow uh, the remnant of Israel to go home. And they don't all go home. They start to go home in, in different waves. Uh, the first leader was uh, Zerubbabel, and then we have the book of Ezra that, that gives the account of how Ezra and his group went back. Then they rebuilt the temple, and then now Nehemiah comes as the third wave. In there, before Nehemiah, there's Esther. You know the story of Esther. But all this is, is going on. There's a remnant of Israel that has gone back, um, and there's some that are still stranded over in the Persian um, Empire. Uh, where Nehemiah is, he's in Susa, which would be uh, down like by Babylon, where Babylon would be. So um, he's got men, his brothers come from, uh, from his homeland. And he's going to ask them uh, concerning what, what's going on with his people. He's a cupbearer to the king, but he's got a burden for his people. And they said to me, the remnant there in the... Uh, where am I at here? Remnant there in the province who survived exile are in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are still destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And then I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, we're going to be dealing with what to do with a burdened heart. When God puts a burden upon your heart, how do you, how do you respond? Um, what is the source of a burdened heart? What are, you, what are you personally passionate about? Now, when I was first thinking I was going to be going through this in June, um, the idea where I was going with it was more dealing with figuring out what our, our passions are as individuals and how to respond to the promptings of God um, and what we're passionate about. Um, but there's, there's two sides of this that we need to understand, obviously, because the promptings of God, he might be moving you something that has to do with what you're passionate about, or he might be moving you something that is an immediate need in the community or with individuals around you. So there's two kinds of burden. One deals with your personality, your talents, your gifts that he's given you, something that he wants to do in your life. The latter is what we're really dealing with right now. Um, where God awakens your heart to immediate need. Um, but it's important to understand, no matter what, that God moves in a heart that responds to the promptings that he gives. God moves in a heart that responds to those promptings, whether it's a long-term passion that he's placing on your heart or an immediate need. That's, that's the way that God is working, and that's what we want to dive into, is how do we, how do we listen to that voice of God? of what God's doing. How do we, how do we get ourselves to a, a point where we are responsive? Because God might move you, um, God might place a burden on your heart uh, through emotion, uh, as is the case that we're, we're dealing with right now, where we see these images or we hear the stories of the people that are affected and our, our heart is, is burdened and we have compassion and God uses that to produce a burden of what can I do? How can I help? How can I get involved? Uh, but the burden of God that he placed on us doesn't always come the same way. Sometimes God speaks quiet, quietly to you. Sometimes it's loud. Um, but no matter how God lays a burden upon your heart, you really it comes down to two choices. Once it's clear that God has, has communicated to you, you only have a choice whether you obey or whether you move away. Whether you obey God or whether you move away from, from God. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, I think of the story of Elijah. Uh, after he had had this big showdown with the prophets of Baal, and then he 
he runs away. He retreats up to the mountain because his life is in danger. And there, God meets him there on top of that mountain. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, God comes in the whirlwind and all of this. And then God comes to him in a still small voice. But it's interesting that uh, God didn't come in any way, shape, or form that Elijah wanted him to come. And God didn't tell him what he wanted him to do. Elijah was hoping that God was going to give him a new mission. Elijah was up there hoping that God was going to say, okay, go somewhere else, we're done with this nation of Israel. Um, And God told him, Elisha, go back to where you came from. And what I love about these stories is that sometimes we feel like these men, like Elijah, they're something other than us, that they're, they're at a higher level of spirituality. But but Elijah's real, and he didn't respond well. He didn't like what God had to say. It was out of his comfort zone, and he argued with God. And um, he sat there and told God about how much good that he had been doing and how he didn't deserve it. But the important part is, at the end of it all, Elisha bended to his knees before his God, and he said yes. And I, I think that's where we need to get to. We are real people. And we're not going to respond with joy. No one expects us to respond immediately. But the key is when we get to the point of evaluating who God is and who we are, that we do respond. And that's where God gets us. And that's what we want to look at today. Um, my wife and I were reading, we have a friend of ours, she lives here in Palisadre, Natalie Putnam. Did anybody know Natalie or any of the Putnams? Um, wonderful family, a beautiful story. Uh, she just published this book, um, Okayest Mom, uh, When God's Plan of Adopting Doubled My Family. Um, it's a beautiful story about how God took them out of their comfort zone. Um, and placed uh, a burden for adoption on their hearts, which um, ended up doubling their family because they adopted an entire family of boys and girls from Ethiopia. Two boys and two girls. Um, I'm going to shamelessly advertise the book. It's a good book to read. But I want to read a piece of this for you guys this morning because I think it's very candid, um, and it gives a candid example of, of just what... It, what it's practically like as real people to, to hear the voice of God um, and how to respond. So I want to give a little excerpt here of when they felt the call of God, um, some things that they were going through and thinking. It really all started uh, with her husband and her feeling that, that God was moving them to something more, not knowing what it was, but that God, God had placed the burden on their heart that that they were coming up on a crossroads in their life. Um, and so I'll pick up here and, and you guys just listen. She says, I'm not a big fan of change. I like stability. I'm happiest when everyone follows my plan. My list of favorite things include list with every item crossed off by the end of the day, advance notice for any changes to my schedule, a husband who completes their honeydew list in a timely manner, All of these things. But my favorite things also include God and prayer and growth within myself and within my husband. And so I agreed with my husband to pray for God to do a new work in our hearts and our lives. And we prayed together in our bed before we went to sleep. We prayed individually in quiet times and as we drove to carpools. We prayed for open hearts, minds, and ears. And we started sharing ideas and posing questions with each other. As I was cooking at breakfast, is God asking us to move to a new city? While packing school lunches to become missionaries? At the family dinner table, to support a new ministry or to volunteer? Brushing our teeth side by side in the bathroom to start a new business? Waking up as the sun broke the horizon. To adopt? Now wait a minute, adopt? Now where did that idea come from? We agreed years ago that we would never adopt. 
Before we said our marriage vows, we promised each other that adoption was not going to be part of our story. We both had been, turned, had been burned when we had gotten too close to adoption and foster care. Yet here he stood, barefoot in the walk-in closet, dropping heavy words before I'd even had my first cup of coffee. It felt important, that moment in the closet. As Scott's words filled the empty space between us, I felt a stutter step in my heart. Not a good, warm quickening, more like a flutter of panic. It felt like those might be the whispered words of God. I wasn't sure I wanted to hear them. In the months that followed, amidst our discussions, research, questions, and prayers, God whispered it again and again to my heart. Yes, this is it. He whispered it through the lives of our friends, Chris and Jessica. They had adopted four children and birthed three. They made life in a large family look fun, attractive, and joyful. If they could do it, maybe we could too. As we sat across the coffee table from our friends and asked our question and listed our concerns, they assured us that we could. God whispered it through the death of my husband's best friend. As Peter battled cancer and hoped that he could spend more time with his children here on earth, he also prepared his soul to spend eternity with his Father in heaven. Staring death in the face has a way of bringing one's life into focus. What is most important? As we sat next to Peter's bed with his wife, children and parents, as, he, as his breathing stuttered to a stop, we were reminded that our lives are but a vehicle for God's plan. Late one night when I, my house was sleeping, I sat in bed and I read again the verse that I had been reading during all these months. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James 1.27 now, I had convinced myself that I was searching for God's will when I read this verse, but in reality, I was searching those words for a hidden escape hatch. And I prayed, make it clear, God, you know me. You know I want a road map. Can you please show me where I can turn? Shall I continue in my life and go straight ahead, or is this a fork in the road? God, is this what you have for me, for our family? Do you want us to adopt? Right there in my bed with my feet tucked under my blanket and my Bible on my knees, I felt God say, Natalie, why would I say no? I already answered you in that book that you're holding. Who do you think wrote those words, care for orphans? If you are willing to adopt, why would I say no? At that moment, I gave in to God. I acknowledged that I had heard his whispers and I agreed to follow him down this new path on our family's map. And I said yes. And as soon as we made the decision and stepped into this uncharted area, road signs began to appear, and we walked forward, and God provided the directional arrows. And our job was just to learn to read them. Okay. Once again, I, I read that because it's, it's just a candid account of real people um, figuring out how to, how to discern the will of God. Um, and I imagine that you guys can all relate to that as, as Gabby and I were able, able to relate to that. As you, you, you put your burden before the Lord and, and you bring it before Him every morning at different moments. Is this it? Is this what you want, God? Is this what you want? Not in every case is God's will for you or is God's burden something that's glowing and joyful. Sometimes it's that sick pit in your stomach. I want to look at Nehemiah's progression of, the progression of his burdened heart. As we look through this, I, I see a few things that I pointed out here. The first stage for Nehemiah was that he wept and he mourned before God. He wept and he mourned. This is the emotional response. Um, his people are hurting, and it's an instant burden. But you see how he moves from weeping and mourning before God for days, it says, and he continued fasting and praying 
So he moves into a confession of sin. And it's not just the confession of the sin of his people. He, he brings himself in it. And he aligns himself with the people of Israel and says, God, me, my fathers, my grandfathers, all of us have sinned against you. And he acknowledges where, where him, where he himself and the people of Israel, where they stand before God. This confession of sin brings about a proper perspective of the need that is attached to the burden because now it's not just that the people are destitute and the walls are burnt down. He aligns himself with the heart of God that, oh God, my, my people, they are far from you and my people need you. And that's what God really wanted. God wanted the walls built, but God wanted the nation back. And they were sitting there dormant. The next step you see is that he recites the promises of God back to him. He goes in there and he says, not because of what I want, God, but because of what you have promised. You promised that if we disobeyed you and, and we walked away from you, that you would scatter us. But you promised that if our hearts returned to you, you would bring us back no matter how far we are. He recites the promises of God back to him and he holds on tight. And he doesn't let go. Now let me give you a perspective here of not letting go. Uh, when he got the news and he got this burden on his heart, this is in the month of Kislev, that would be around November to December. Uh, when he comes before the king and the king sends him on the way, it says it's in the month of Nisan, which is around March to April. So we're four to four and a half months that he is on his knees bringing this before God. Um, a lot of things grow in your heart when you spend that long of a time burdened in praying for a certain cause. The next thing that I notice is that in that time, yeah, he develops a hypothetical plan. He hypothetically develops a plan of attack. Because when he goes before the king and the king asks him what you would have, well, he's got it all laid out. He says, okay, well, I'm going to need letters sent to the, the governors to let me through. I'm going to need protection. I'm going to need letters sent to Asaph so that I can get lumber. And here's how much lumber I'm going to need. And the king asked him, how long are you going to be gone? And it says he gave him a direct time. He, he had a plan of attack. Um, he knew how long it was going to take to accomplish the task. And you might hear that and say, well, I could never do that. You know, if I had that dropped on me, how would I know how long it was going to take? Let me ask you this. If you, if you have something on your house that um, is in disrepair, say the, your front porch on your house is falling apart and it needs to be fixed, um, the deck, okay? See, we got practical examples over here. Your wife has told you again and again, you might get stepping into something. <laughs> and every time you get in your truck to leave for work in the morning, and every time you come back from work in, in the afternoon, you look at that and you see it, and it's fresh on your mind. After days on end of doing that, you see it morning, you see it in the evening, and you keep coming back. Well, what's going to happen is you're going you're gonna to develop a plan in your mind of how you would fix it, right? It's going to just subconsciously come to like, okay, what I need is do this, and I would, the best way to do it would be this. As you're turning your car off and you're thinking about it, as you're walking to the house, it's kind of on your mind. For me, it would probably be about five hours into my day after I left in the morning. It would still be in my mind. But one way or another, whether you're thinking about it or not, a plan is going to start to develop in your mind of like, well, if I did have the money or when I do get the money, I'm going to have to do that and it would be probably best to do this and I'm going to need this and this and such and such and it's going to unfold. Um, after a few months, if you were to have somebody that would just drop the money to fix your deck, well, you're going to have a pretty good idea of what needs to be done. It just, that's how it works. Here's where I'm going with this. Practical application. Every single person in this room most likely has somebody, a family member, a friend, a coworker, or somebody that they're just in contact that is going through something pretty rough right now. And if it's not with 
the fires that we're having, then maybe it's something else. But you have somebody that's really going through something terrible. I guarantee it. Our, our, usually our first reaction is um, we see somebody that's hurting, and we immediately try to develop a plan to fix it. And like, oh, how can I help them? How can I help them? Okay, what can I do? What can I do? Nothing, if nothing comes to mind, then we, we get discouraged, and we kind of back down, and we say, okay, well, I really hope something happens to help them. Um, why don't you guys do an exercise with me? I want everybody to close your eyes. And I want you to visualize somebody that is hurting. Visualize that person in your life that might be going through something. And if it's not in this area, if it's not with the fire, I want you to think of somebody who is in need. Think of their face, and I, and I want you to think of what their need is, just what their need is, what that person needs. Don't think of how to fix it. Just think of what their need is. Now, what would happen if we just took a simple step to start things out? And you take that person, or a couple people, you can open your eyes now, I don't, keep them closed too long. I don't know who's sleeping in my service, so. <laughs> what if you started with just a simple step? If every single one of us took one person that we're thinking of and you set an alarm in your phone if you need to, but you commit that twice a day, at least twice a day, I'm going to bring this person before the Lord and that need. It may start simple, but the thing is, as you start praying for that person every morning, or as middle of the day, um, you do that for a few days, then that person starts to become on your mind throughout the day. Um, that goes on for a week, and now throughout the day, more things are coming to mind, and you see things that remind you of that person. Or you see things that remind you of that need that you had, had thought of. And God begins to work in your heart. As you begin to think of that person and that need continually, give it a week, two weeks, what, what's going to begin to happen is the same thing as your broken deck. Plans start to come together. And God begins to put on your heart um, specific ways that that burden can be lifted. And God begins to show you, hey, look, remember you've been praying for this? You can meet them that way. The other thing that's going to happen is when you meet that person, um, when you see that person uptown, or when you run into them next time, if you've been praying for them two, three times a day, and they're constantly on your heart, your interaction with them is going to be completely different. This is how our God works. I would encourage us all to start simple. You don't have to have a plan of attack, but we all have somebody that's going through it right now. You lift them up, and God's going to start putting the burden on your heart. If you bring them before him daily, God's going to start doing the work. And God's going to begin to do something else. He's going to start to reveal to you what involvement that you might be able to have. The last thing in Nehemiah is just this. The last verse in chapter 1, after he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and the prayer of your servants to delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he throws in here at the very end of the first chapter, now I was the cupbearer to the king. And that's fascinating to me because we just went through an entire chapter and we had no clue really what he did. If you were reading through this, you don't know anything about Nehemiah except you do know that he loves his God. We do know that he's a Jew. We do know that he's been exiled from his people and that he has a great burden from his people. We get an idea of where his heart's at. We don't know anything about what his position or, or anything else is. And then he just kind of throws in at the end. By the way, I was the cupbearer to the king. And it makes you really think a lot about how we evaluate what's important in our life. Um, and how we evaluate what our identity is. Let me ask you a question. Who are you? 
Who are you? We, I had asked earlier, what is the source of a burdened heart? The reason why I ask that is because it really comes down to this right here, of, of our identity, the list of who we are. What do you do? What defines who you are? Now, if I were to ask you guys, um, what, is the most, what are the most important things in your life? A question like that. Then I know that everybody here would list from the top, spiritual down. Um, if you were to be asked what's important, it would be, well, well, God and my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife and my children. I, I have no doubt about that. But what's interesting, if you meet somebody and they say, what do you do? The answer is, well, I'm a contractor, um, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a gas man. That's me. Um, we have a separation where we have a hard time figuring out the difference between who we are and what we do. And I know Jerry was talking about this a few weeks ago going through uh, Colossians. And I would, I would just put it out there, does it have to be that way? Do we, do we define who we are based on our occupation, on our income? Or, or do we need to restructure the way we think about who we are? Fit in there self-employed or retired too because that becomes an identity. If I were to look at Nehemiah's list of who he was, well, you see right off the bat that Nehemiah, well, he is a follower of the one true God. He's a Jew, and he's an exile. I'm not sure where cupbearer fits in there. If I were to write down my list of what I would want to say who I am, I would say that I am a, a chosen child of God. I'm a servant of the king. I'm a husband and a teammate to my wife. I'm a father, as far as what I do. I'm a father training up kids to know God, to love God, to serve God, trying to prepare them for eternity. You can keep going down the list. I, uh, one thing that Gabby and I have really made a motto, uh, the intentional pursuit of others. But I'm not sure that, um, that my occupation actually belongs on the list at all. See, my occupation is not who I am. It's, it's a means of, of providing for the things that are on my list. If you, were to, if you were to write down your list right now, think about what, what would be on your list. If you were going camping, for instance, and you are making a list of what to pack up on your camping, everything that makes your traditional camping memory. Uh, you're going you're gonna to want to throw everything, you know, everything for s'mores, your marshmallows, your roasting sticks, your lanterns, you name it, whatever it is. One thing that you're not usually going to put on the camping list is your camping totes, because it's not really part of camping memories, it's what holds the memories, you know. It is what is the, the thing that you carry camping to your site with. I would put it on the same way with our, with our job and our occupation. I am, I am currently a propane serviceman. Chuck's not here, is he? I've got to be careful. My boss is... I don't want to give the wrong idea. I am, I'm currently a propane serviceman. Right now. It is a means of provision for the things that define who I am. And, that, and that's all it is. It's a means to provide avenues financially or open doors for what defines who I am. Well, turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 1, if you want. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. Okay, Paul has run-on sentences, so we're not going to keep going. How about Galatians? Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Okay? What about... Uh, what about Peter? 
Second Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. You can keep going, keep reading, but it's interesting, you never are going to find a book that starts off Paul, tent maker. You're never going to find a book that starts off Peter, fisherman. It was a means to provide for who they were. Their identity was not in the provision. Their identity it was in who they were. So what's the point I'm saying? It may seem silly, but what, what if we genuinely lived our lives as though this was true? What if we genuinely lived our lives as though um, I am here for a purpose set by God? What if uh, somebody asked me, what do you do? <laughs> and my mental response, physical response, whatever it might be, what, what if my response was, well, currently I'm, I'm raising three kids to, to try to know God, love God, serve God. And by the way, I do propane service work on the side. You know, What, what if we lived with our identity at the form, foremost part of our life, at the top? Where does your financial occupation fit? Because here's where I'm getting at. If the financial occupation fits into the top of your list, then um, you're going to push aside any burden or impulse or prompting that God might lay on your heart if it might infringe upon your job description, your financial job description. If your financial occupation, however, fits in as your means to supply um, the top three or four on your list, your worldview is going to be completely different. Because now, when God says, hey, I want you to go here, you say, okay, God, that's what you're doing. Well, I, I'm a servant of God. That's what I do. That's what I am. God, how can my financial occupation fit into this? God, can my financial occupation be of assistance? Let's continue on with Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, I'm only going to pause here for a second, but just think about that. As far as our interaction with the world around us, it is something notable to say that this man had never been sad in the king's presence. Does that mean that life was always great? No. But does it mean that he ever showed a sour face? What it means is that he carried consistent joy with him. So much so that the king of the land with all of the responsibilities noticed when his demeanor changed. I think that's pretty powerful. I would hate to ask if people would notice if I had a burden on my heart like Nehemiah had. Or if I would look the same exact way that I do every day. Picking up there, he says, and then I was very much afraid. Let me get back to Nehemiah, close my Bible. There we are. The king said to me, no, there we go. Why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, this is what we were talking about that moment when the burden that God places in your heart meets opportunity. Where God all of a sudden says, here's the opportunity. And he's been praying about it for four months, not knowing what God's going to do, probably assuming that God's going to cause a revival with the people of Israel. It's that moment that Natalie was talking about in her book when you realize that God is speaking to you. And unfortunately for many of us, we don't get past this part. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed? He simply lays out his heart. Not knowing what the king's going to say, but God goes further. The king said to me, what are you requesting? 
And now it becomes real. And what does he do? He says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now this is not a detailed prayer. This is one of those spur of the moment, oh God, be with me. Oh God, let my words fall on a soft heart because we're going. And this is picking up speed fast. He calls out to God and he dives in head first. I want you guys to understand that Nehemiah is not a special individual, that Nehemiah is, um, well, he's just a plain, simple, blue-collared worker. He's not even blue-collared. He's, he doesn't get the collar. He's just, he is just the cupbearer to the king. He doesn't have a spiritual insight that we don't have. He's confronted with the same decision that we get often. And I would be really embarrassed if somebody had written down the account of my life. Um, because if they had written down the account of my life, the same opportunities that he had would have ended dif- differently so many times. Because if I was, was feeling this burden on my heart and then my employer or the king asked me, what's going on? You know, what's, why is your heart heavy and burdened? My response would probably be, oh, no, it, it's nothing. I'm sorry. I'll get back to work. How many times have those moments passed us by? Because there's a difference between a burdened heart and a responsive heart. Okay, a burden is given by God. God places the burden on our hearts. When he shows us people that are hurting, when we see the images, when we see the stories, when we, when we hear from our friends what's going on, and our heart breaks, that's the burden of God. But what God needs is a heart that's ready to respond. And that's a whole different game. Here's where I want to end up today. Guys, the strength of a church is not in the quality of the pastor. The strength of a church is not in its teachers or its leaders, its elders. So many times people shop around to try to find the church that has a pastor that's going to feed them the word of God and that's going to feed them accurately and with proper doctrine. That's not where the strength lies in the church. A strength is only as str- a church is only as strong as its members. And the strength of a church lies in the number of real people that are responding to the promptings of God in those seats right there, right where you're at. That's where the strength of a church is. What's interesting about the story of Nehemiah is that, like I said, Ezra, the book of Ezra goes before. Ezra tells a story of how years previous they came, the second wave came to Israel, and they rebuilt the temple. So these people have a standing temple that Nehemiah is going to. They have a place to worship, and they have functioning religious leaders, and yet uh, the people of Israel have been sitting stale amongst the burnt rubble of their hometown, God's city, for 70 years. And the religious leaders, they didn't do anything about it. Did the religious leaders respond to the promptings of God? They didn't. The strength of a church is not in the quality of the pastor, teacher, leaders. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Hey, God found a man. He found a cupbearer halfway across the world, a servant of the king that was willing to respond. That's all he was, just a man willing to respond. And what's funny about this book, if you were to pick up halfway chapter through and re- chapter 2 and read through Nehemiah, you would never know that this man was a cupbearer to the king because he comes in with su- such authority and confidence and courage because he knows that God sent him. And he's telling the religious leaders what to do and saying, shape up. But he's just a cupbearer that responded to God. Think of the song we sang last week, song we grew up with, trust and obey what he says we will do, 
Where he sends, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Every corporate revival begins with a singular decision of obedience. Here's what I would like to see in this coming month as we go through this and the months to come as we try to work through um, the rubble of our community. I would love... We're going to go from this into communion and then from there we're going to go out. And you're going to go to those people that you have in your mind. You're going to go to those people that, that you know are hurting. What if we all went out determined to be soft and moldable to the promptings of God this week? What if we all went out with the decision that we were going to lift up one person daily, twice a day, to see what God would have us to do? And the next week we come back in and we sit shoulder to shoulder, plan on it, and we fill up and we share what God had done through the week. I would love to see Oak Grove be the um, inhaling and exhaling of God to our community. That God would exhale us out to do what he needs us to do and suck us back in where we fill up, we share what he did, and we see what, what needs to be done in this community because we've got a long road ahead of us and we need to figure out what our role is. That's my prayer. Why don't we close in prayer before communion? God, I'm always amazed at when I get into the lives of, of these people in your word at how real we can, we can relate to them, God, because they're people that you have, have put here that have real decisions like we have. And real moments in history. And I just pray that you would work in the hearts of us as individuals, God, so that we can come back as a body, Lord, and then you can show us how to respond as a body because we respond in our individual hearts. So do mighty work in this church in all the churches in Shasta County, every other county, God, that's affected by so many things right now. But do your work in us, this body, by us listening to the promptings that you give us this week. One week at a time, God, we can take this. Show us where to go. And I pray that we have a wonderful time in communion now. And we pray this in your name. Amen.